Jude 1 and 3, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. There is a medical condition, and I know I'm going to have trouble saying it. I practiced it all day. There's a medical condition known as anosognosia. Anosognosia. It is a word of Greek origin that roughly translates to without knowledge of disease. When someone is unaware, it's, it's when someone is unaware of their health condition and they can't, they don't know that they're sick. They're unable to understand that they have a problem. What it boils down to is that the person is unaware of their condition and unable to accept it. It is to be sick but not know you're sick. In my opinion, modern Christianity is suffering from spiritual and on a anosognosia. I'm going to practice that. I'm going to get it. If I can't figure out how to say it, I'm going to pray for the gift of interpretation. Christianity is in crisis in modern culture, and it appears that Christianity doesn't realize it's in trouble. The church in America has seen significant loss. I'm talking about Christianity as a whole has seen significant loss of followers, down 9% from 2003 to 2018. That trend is especially troubling when in the same time period that there's been a 9% decrease in Christianity, there's been a 10% rise in atheism, agnosticism, and no religion at all over the same time period. I would argue that Christianity itself is to blame. Dead churches proposing doctrinal fallacies to dead Christians is no way to have a revival. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary estimated that there were 43,000 Christian denominations, 40 major divisions, in six major cultural mega blocks, 43,000. Not all of these denominations and divisions and mega blocks can have truth. The subject of the presentation I'm giving tonight is baptismal mode in church history. And I suggest that the Bible is clear in its proper method of baptism. And I also propose that the Apostolic Pentecostal Church has maintained the true biblical form of baptism as practiced by the apostles. The apostle Jude, the brother of James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote of what he called the common salvation. The word common, the original Greek word, means the universal or shared by all faith. Jude did not advocate a multiple interpretation of the gospel. He didn't validate a buffet option to Christianity. He instructed believers to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered, a universal 
common, shared by all faith of the early church. He furthermore made it clear that this universal, shared by all, common faith was only once delivered. Once means a singular time. There was not a progressive revelation of the plan of salvation. There was one common salvation delivered one single time to humanity. It is incumbent on all of us to discover what that one singular common salvation message is. For when you study history in historical research, primary source material is crucial to getting the, the right understanding. Terry Taylor explained, quote, primary, primary information sources are those that are closest to the actual event, time period, or individual in question. It would be an eyewitness account, people who actually were there and saw it. It's the, the closest to the original as you can get. Helen Poulton defined primary sources as the words of the witnesses or the first recorders of an event. When you are talking about doctrine and practice in the church, Luke's account of the book of Acts is the primary source material. Many Christian researchers, they go to the ideas and writings of what they call the early church fathers or councils or creeds that emerged uh, as denominations began. This is not the proper way to find the truth. It's not the proper methodology. It leads to false doctrine. Luke's writings and actions of the apostles are the primary source. It's the purest presentation of Christian thought. The apostles did not have doctrinal variance in terms of their salvation doctrine. They had total solidarity when it came to salvation message. Luke didn't preach one gospel and Paul preached another and Peter preached another and Matthew preached another and James preached another and John preached another. There was one common salvation that was once delivered to the saints. It was a complete idea of solidarity among the apostles and what they preached. Acts 2 and 14 said Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice. It shows that it was not just Simon Peter himself doing the preaching. It was Simon Peter with the 11, all the apostles, preached and believed the same thing. It's important that we understand that. Luke was clear to point out, he was clear to point out that Peter was with the rest of the apostles, the other 11. These apostles were uni unified sources for doctrine, for government, for church practice. They had been schooled by Jesus himself. Furthermore, they had been taught not only by Christ before his crucifixion, but Christ spent 40 days with them after his resurrection. Luke 24, 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. He opened their understanding to understand the scriptures. And, and the specific topic he was giving them understanding of, if you look in, at, at Luke 24, was he opened their mind that they might understand the scriptures that they would know that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name starting at Jerusalem. So what he gave them revelation of was repentance and remission of sins. 
So not only did he open their understanding, but he also spent 40 days with them. Acts 1 and 3 says, the latter part of the verse says that he was seen of them 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So these apostles, these apostles had been given special revelation and understanding by Jesus Christ himself and personal teaching on how the kingdom of God operated. They knew what they were talking about. Understanding that proper historical research goes to primary source material. The unquestioned point of origin of the church was the upper room. All denominations point to that as the beginning of the church age. The upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2 is the center point, is the beginning point of the church age of the Christian church. Amen. We as apostolic Pentecostals, obviously, we point to that, but, but apostolics are not the only ones that believe that. Pope Francis, uh, he visited the upper room in 2014, and he said this, quote, here the church was born. In a similar statement, a Baptist theologian, Bert D. Domini, he said, quote, to exaggerate the significance of Pentecost would be difficult indeed. Pentecost is necessary not only to the well-being of the Christian faith, but is essential to the very existence of the faith, end quote. Franciscan priest, priest Peter Vaghi, he called the upper room the most important room in all of Christendom. And Methodist Bishop William R. Cannon called the Acts 2 day of Pentecost, quote, the birth of the church by the Holy Spirit, end quote. The outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the upper room was the birth of the church. It was ground zero. It was the point of origin. The apostle Peter, holding the keys of the kingdom, preached the first sermon of the church age. His sermon that he preached resulted in a question and answer session. The earliest primary source material for the Christian church is this sermon, the following questions and answers. His voice was the first to explain Christianity to the world. The spirit-empowered preaching of the apostle Peter brought the crowd to conviction and they in turn asked the apostles the critical question, Acts 2.37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do is the most important question that has ever been asked in the history of the world. It is the question that everyone who really seeks God eventually asks either by word or action. There is no serious variance among major commentators that this question undoubtedly means what must we do to be saved. It's the first time in the church dispensation that the question of salvation was, at, was raised. The spirit-baptized disciples, fresh out of the upper room, having the opportunity to announce the message to the world after 40 days with the resurrected Christ, they were mandated to share what they knew to be the truth to the world. They had been posed a direct question. What do I have to do to be saved? And the apostle Peter standing with the rest of the 11 disciples answered the question. You know it, you can quote it with me if you want. Acts 2, 38, 
Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is the original answer to the most important question. This, this is the most pure, unadulterated response to the critical question. Peter's reply is the common salvation delivered to the saints. This is uncontaminated Christian doctrine. It's the only answer. It's the only answer that was once delivered to the saints. Any answer that varies from Peter's answer in Acts 2 is false doctrine, and it's an incorrect answer. Anything that deviates to any degree from this original primary source once delivered answer is not the common salvation that the Bible tells us we must earnestly contend for. This message is the answer. It's not an answer, it's the answer. Not yet perverted by man's ideas, doctrinal counsels, or denominational nuances. If you want primary source pure doctrine, then you must go to this original response from the Apostle Peter. The critical question regarding mode of baptism is one of importance. The germane question is, does it matter how people are baptized? If it doesn't matter, then it doesn't, then, then, then there's no point even writing about it in the Bible. I present that it does matter how someone is baptized. F.F. Bruce said, to this day, the surest criterion of an apostolic church is, is, it, is its adherence to apostolic teaching. To break down what Bruce said, if a church does not adhere to what the apostles taught, then it cannot be an apostolic church. What the apostles taught and preached is true Christianity. Anything else that varies from that is not the truth. The apostle Paul believed it mattered how Christians were baptized. In Acts 19, we learn about Paul's doctrine of baptism. It's critical to understand the nature of the people that Paul was preaching to. He was dealing with what the Bible called in Acts 19 and 4, certain disciples. We further find out that not only were they certain disciples, but they were believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So he's dealing with believers and disciples. We find another critical question that Paul posed talking about salvation. He asked them in Acts 19 and 3, unto what then were you baptized? Paul did not ask them if they were baptized. He asked them how they were baptized. It points to the universal doctrine of the church that believers are baptized. That when someone believes in Jesus Christ, they are baptized into the church. His question was not if, but how. Their response was that they had been baptized by John's baptism. And Paul noted that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, saying that repentance alone is not sufficient to attain salvation. These honest and sincere believers appropriate, appropriately responded to the words of Paul. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Acts 19 and 5. It's clear that Paul believed it mattered how a Christian was baptized. Otherwise, he would not have asked the question. Furthermore, when he rebaptized them, he did so in the name of the Lord Jesus. We find biblical precedent 
for rebaptizing anyone who has not been baptized in Jesus' name. Baptism, by definition, means to submerge or immerse. Everett Ferguson wrote, the description of the baptism suggests an immersion. Both Philip and the eunuch, Acts chapter number 8, went down into the water and he baptized him. The word is baptizo. It means by definition to immerse, to dip. Paul talked about baptism in terms of burying, Romans 6 and 4, Colossians 2 and 12. G.R. Beasley Murray, he wrote, the symbolism of immersion as representing burial is striking. New Testament writers constant use of the active and the passive of the original Greek verb for baptism, quote, points to the fact that from the very beginning, the candidate was considered immersed. Milo P. Jewett wrote, the immersion of the subject in water is essential to the ordinance. If any person, he continued, if any person is disposed to question this, he can satisfy himself by examining places in which the two words occur. There are two words that in Greek. One is babto and one is baptizo. Babto means just to color or to, to, to dye something. Baptizo means to immerse, to dip. Everywhere where it's called baptism, it means to immerse or to dip completely under the water. And, he, and I say, quote, baptizo never means anything but to immerse. Baptism is by immersion. If it's not immersion, it's not baptism, according to the scripture. Joseph Yesbert wrote, the term baptizo derives, it's, it defines baptism from the point of view of the ritual act of washing by an immersion of the body. It's a cleansing by immersion. Jacob Neusner said, that the, that the principal interest when it comes to defining baptism is, quote, water that serves for removing uncleanness through immersion. Baptism must be by immersion. Amen. Furthermore, documents found at Qumran said that if it was any amount of water less than what, quote, less than the quantity that covers up a man, that they, it actually transmits uncleanness rather than cleanness. Baptism is by immersion. The New Testament record contains only baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38, Acts 10.48, Acts 19.5. There's evidence that this formula continued to be the mode of baptism for the church. Lutheran historian Otto Hike said, quote, at first baptism was administered in the name of Jesus, end quote. Paul Fine wrote, quote, at first baptism was in the name of Christ. If you look at all the baptisms of the New Testament church, Acts 2.38, Acts 10.48, Acts 19 and 5, and Acts 22.16, baptism was always in the name of the Lord. They have special em emphasis on the name of Jesus, Luke's call for repentance and remission of sins was to be preached in his name, Luke 24, 47. The apostle Peter, quote, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul emphasized the name of Christ, quote, 
and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17. The early Christian church was radically Jesus-centric. Lars Hartman pointed out that the original baptism formula using Jesus' name, quote, presupposed that the using of the name was Christ's authority for remission sins. It didn't have authority without the name. He also said, quote, Jesus Christ becomes the fundamental reference of the right based on the use of his name. If, it's not, if it doesn't have his name, it doesn't include him. James D.G. Dunn says, quote, the name of Jesus was named over the baptisms, including indicating that the one under whose authority they were being placed. If the name's not there, they're not under his authority. He continued, quote, the formula used in Acts suggests that, now this is a powerful quote. Uh, we're going to like it, but some of the people at the symposium aren't. He continued, quote, the formula used in Acts in the name of Jesus Christ suggests that the threefold formula of the Great Commission, the Trinitarian formula, was a later development. Oscar Kuhlman said, quote, according to the earliest text, only the name of Christ was invoked in the very act of baptism. Baptism is in the name of Jesus Christ. It's important to know that Luke was not one of the original apostles. Luke was a later convert to Christianity. He was not in the upper room. He, was, he, he didn't follow Jesus. He was a Gentile convert that came along later. When he wrote about the history of the church, he wrote what he was told by the apostles and by Paul and the early believers. He wrote what he was told. He said as much in Luke chapter number one that he was taught by those who had, quote, perfect understanding from the very beginning. So Luke writes what he is told. He is writing what is the history lesson of the church taught some 50 years later. So what we find from Luke is that a whole generation after Christ, baptism was still being done in the name of Jesus Christ, and that was the language of the church. Clearly, any other formula was not in use at the time of Luke. It was a later development. When the first believers passed on their doctrine and their stories, baptism was definitely associated with the name of Jesus Christ. It was the vernacular of the church until the Catholic church began to change and pervert doctrine. Again, Hartman boldly states that the Jesus name formula for baptism was, quote, a literal translation of the original Hebrew Aramaic idiom. Everett Ferguson said that the importance of the phrases referring to Jesus name and baptism is that they identify Christian baptism as done with reference, reverence, to Jesus Christ. The use of the name of Jesus in baptism, quote, was from the earliest times Christian baptism was administered in the name of Jesus. And I quote Professor George Straker when he says, no other baptism formula has been preserved from earliest Christianity. That leaves us with the only possible conclusion 
that any other baptism than Jesus' name baptism was not known by the apostles and was developed later by other people who did not have the authority to make such developments. Larry Hurtado noted that Jesus' name, quote, clearly functioned with such divine significance in early Christian ritual, pointing out that, quote, we have references indicating that Jesus' name was invoked in the ritual of baptism. All historical evidence points to baptism being in the name of Jesus Christ and by immersion. Any variance from that was a later development by those who were not authorized to change the faith that was once delivered to the church. Adversaries of Jesus' name baptism, interestingly, do most other religious rites in Jesus' name. They pray for healing in Jesus' name, they pray for their food in Jesus' name, and they praise and worship in Jesus' name, but the lone objection is baptism, even though the apostles strongly emphasized it. Often, opponents of Jesus' name baptism look at Matthew 28, 19, and they cite it as the basis for objection on the grounds that they, quote, take Christ's words before they take Peter and Paul's, end quote. This slippery slope argument is a radical leap. To embrace this position, you have to claim to reject the words and the writings of the apostles. Christ's instruction was not given to ignorant men, but to those that had understanding of the scriptures. There, the apostles either understood Christ's instruction to use the name, or they were rebellious to his commands. If their actions in Acts show understanding, then we should do what they did. If their actions show rebellion, then we should reject everything they wrote. We either believe in the Bible or we don't. The disciples were either right or they were frauds. In the Catholic Historical Review, Dr. Leo F. Miller spoke about the Trinitarian baptismal formula currently used by many denominations as, quote, he says, quote, it is impossible to offer a historical proof of the existence of the present formula of baptism in the first three centuries of the church, end quote. It is impossible to offer an historical proof of the existence of the present quote-unquote Trinitarian formula of baptism in the first three centuries. It took 300 years to develop something, even though the Bible says that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. Time and space, I'm already over my time, by the way, that I'm allotted for general conference. I'm gonna have to do some uh, editing. Time and space has shortened the presentation. We've only scratched the surface. There's a chain of evidence that shows that there has always been there have always been Christians who baptized by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ. F.F. F. Bruce, as I've quoted before, 
said the surest criterion for an apostolic church is adherence to apostolic teaching. You cannot be an apostolic church and not follow the teaching of the apostles. Baptism is by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ, and that is biblical. Amen. So that's that. Pray for me. I want to talk to you for just a few moments before we go home tonight about, about three things that are very important to our church. Um, many of you, many of you are just by, by virtue of how long that you've been in the church, you, you're not really familiar with what we, what we do as, as far as a discipleship system. We, I've spent the last three weeks, I spent the last three weeks talking about the mission of the church, um, about our purpose. Why are we here? What is our job? And our purpose is to be disciples and to make disciples. That is the New Testament call for the church. Um, as such, it's a job. It's a task. We, we, are, we are given the responsibility of helping people that have no biblical context or at least no apostolic biblical context and help them to build a life that glorifies God and finds their purpose. And so for that, we have developed a, a lot of systems that, that we talk about. And I think you hear the terms a lot, but you may not really know what all of them are. We talk about first steps. We talk about grow class and we talk about life groups. Um, first steps, grow class and life groups. And I wanted to make sure that you understood what these are. It's very important. It's very important that when we get new people, that we get our new people into first steps, grow class and life groups. First steps, first steps is a meeting that we do on Sunday mornings, immediately following service. Uh, it's, we serve lunch. All of our guests and new people are encouraged to be there. Um, we really want everyone in the church. We really want everyone in the church to go through it at some point. Um, but in first steps, we communicate our vision. We communicate our core values. We communicate who we are. And not only that, but who God has designed them to be. And it is, it is an introduction to help them find what their purpose and in, in, in calling is. And it goes four weeks. Uh, we're starting it back this coming Sunday. Uh, we're starting first steps. If you have a family member or guest that you bring to church, it is important for all of our new people to get to first steps. If you have a family member, a friend uh, that, that come to church, we need you to help them get to first steps. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna be communicating some more, but we, found, we find that people that get in first steps and grow class in life groups, we keep them. We keep them. And because it's important for discipleship to, to learn what is the church about, we make a connection with them. We get a chance to meet with them. They, they, they become part of our church body faster. So first steps is very important. Uh, grow class, grow classes are going on right now. Uh, grow classes have been going on now for, for quite some time. Grow class is divided currently. We, we actually just had a meeting before service about adding another, another level of it. We have Grow One and Grow Two. Grow One is a introductory uh, course on what it means to be an apostolic. 
of what, what, why do we need the church? Why do we need the word? Why do we, you know, all the things that, that we talk about, it's, it's a new member course. Why you need the church and why, why we need to worship, why we need to pray. It's basic introduction to Pentecostal living. And it's grow one. Grow two begins to deal with other areas of life. One of the things that we found out is that when people come to God, they carry a lot of baggage. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in the world, and it affects people. And we come, they, they come to church, and we generally find that within a few weeks of a new member coming that they reach a crisis point. They get to a point, and what's happened is the Holy Ghost has convicted them of things in their life that shouldn't be there. It might be habits, it might be hatred towards an ex-husband or an ex-wife. It might be, might be bitterness towards an abusive father. It might be, it might be uh, anger towards somebody at work. And they, and they have all these things that they've dealt with, scars from their life, and they don't know how to deal with them. And they don't know, and, and so they get to this point where they know enough about God that they know they shouldn't be that way, but they haven't grown enough to know how to deal with it. And so that's why grow classes are important. It puts them in a small group of people where it deals with how to get through some of this stuff. It helps them to grow through that. It helps them to learn how to deal with it. Grow class is important. If you find, if, if you pay attention, the people, the new people that we've had come to church that get involved in in, in first steps and grow class in life groups, they stay because it helps them get through those crisis points in life. And life groups, life groups, uh, we're taking, we're going to take the summer off. We have a seven week break from life groups. Summers are busy. Um, and we're starting back. We're going to start back in August with our life groups. Life groups are small groups that meet in people's homes. I think we have, I think we have 10 life groups currently. We need more. Uh, when we get people that get into life groups, it gives them a network of friends, a network of people in the church. Uh, Jim Rohn said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So you want to know who you are? Look at the people you spend the most time with. And so what we've got to do is we've got to build relationships with people. We need relationships. You need connected to people that have the same goals, visions, and dreams spiritually that you have. And so life groups do that. I will tell you, discipleship almost never happens in this room. I, I know you're afraid to say amen because we've always been, we, we've, we've always focused on church service and we need church because most conversions happen in this room but most discipleship happens in small groups friendships relationships people people don't open up in here about their problems and their trials and their tests but they do in small groups and so first steps grow class and life groups are critical to the to the growth of the church you look at our new people, you look at the ones that have stayed. Uh, we bab we've baptized 29 people so far this year. We baptized, I don't know, around 100 or so last year. Have a lot of new people over the last few months. The ones that stay are the ones that get in first steps, grow class and life groups. I'm, I'm saying this because I think a lot of you, you know, you, you were around long before that stuff. And so you don't really understand 
why we talk about it so much. You're gonna see videos that are gonna be playing. You hear us talk about it. You, you probably say, why do we have to hear these announcements all the time? Well, mostly they're not just for you. Secondly, we've got to connect our new people. We gotta connect our new people so they can grow. And so does anybody have any questions on First Steps Grow Class or Life Group or Baptism? There's no questions. You did really good or really bad. Jim Rohn said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> good. Good for you. <laughs> with that, let's stand. <laughs> That's a good way to close right there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Not necessarily in context, but still awesome. Lord, I thank you, God, because you've given us a powerful revelation of your word. I thank you, God, because you have privileged us to know you and the power of your resurrection and to be a part of a church that has a goal to be disciples and to make disciples. God, I'm asking you to help our grow class leaders, our first steps staff, our life group leaders. God, I pray that you help us at every step of the way as we seek to be disciples and make disciples and to do your work. God, I pray that you help us to have a great foundation of truth in our heart. Help us, God, to be built solidly on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Help us, God, to be firmly rooted on the foundation of your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you, you're dismissed. In Jesus' name.